Father God, in this beautiful psalm that talks about your power and the display of God and creation, creation, your handiwork, Lord, let us see afresh and anew the mighty God of power that we serve, that nothing is impossible for you, and what a privilege and honor it is to know you and to have your great, powerful word working in our hearts. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Though I always like asking people of all the 150 Psalms uh, if they have a favorite. I've asked you that before. Sometimes it's uh, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside quiet waters. Man, you can't go wrong with that. Or um, they pick number 91. The psalm of the Lord's protection. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. That's an, an amazing truth, and you can't get much better than that. Uh, I was interested to read that C.S. Lewis has a favorite uh, psalm, or he had a favorite psalm. Maybe it still is, but since he's still alive. Um, with the Lord, uh, that great theologian, of course, you know, very prolific writer, most famous for Chronicle of Narnia, the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, uh, he gave Psalm 19 first place in his heart. Lewis wrote, I take this to be the greatest psalm of the whole volume and some of the most sublime lyrics the world has ever known. So Psalm 19, awe-inspiring, sublime uh, indeed. And yes, he's right, they're lyrics because uh, most of the Psalms uh, were penned uh, as lyrics and the byline here of this Psalm says King David uh, was the lyricist. Of course, he was aided by the Holy Spirit since the Psalms are the a word of God as a part of the word of God. And so uh, he wrote uh, the, um, the words for the purpose, it says in the byline, of setting them to music to be sung by worshipers there in the temple, uh, there in Jerusalem. So let's hear this amazing song, C.S. Lewis's favorite song. And uh, uh, really by the, by the end of the service, it might be yours as well. Uh, verse one, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Next slide, please. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. 
The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They're more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned in keeping them. There is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive me. Uh, Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. The last verse says, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. While the slide's up there, whenever you see in most of your translations the name of the Lord, in all caps, it's just telling you that of all the Hebrew names for God, this one is Yahweh. This is his covenant name, the name that he revealed to Moses in that eternal burning bush revelation of of God to man there. And so I throw that in for free. All right. So uh, thank you for the slides there. And so, yeah, um, just it's just a beautiful, beautiful uh, psalm. And it flows with a logical progression, uh, which will provide our three talking points for tonight. Uh, Verses one through six, note takers, look into the heavens and see the power of God. Look into the heavens. And then verses seven uh, through 11, look into the scripture and see the goodness of God. And then verses 12 through 14, look into your heart and make sure everything's okay. Yeah, so it it doesn't really matter, and it's kind of a moot point. If you look into the heavens and you see the glory of God, and you look into the scriptures and you see all the good things he's doing and has promised, and then you look into your heart and you're out of alignment, you see. And so we don't want that to happen, and that's the flow of his logic here. So let's look first to the heavens in verses uh, 1 through 4 up there. The heavens declare the glory of God. And notice right away it's heavens uh, with an S. It's plural uh, because there's a lot going uh, on up there in the skies, the things that we can see and the things we can't see. Uh, Even without a telescope, uh, David uh, and any human being who looks into the night sky uh, has been privileged to hear the gospel. That's what he's saying. Uh, that uh, the gospel that's proclaimed by just looking at the things God has made, uh, proclaimed with a greater eloquence than all the most gifted preachers the world has ever known. The existence of a good and powerful God, and by implication, our obligation to Him as creator. I mean, you got to feel a little sorry for atheists um, because on, on one, more than one reason, um, you know, uh, someone may be protesting, there is no God, there is no God. And it's like somebody saying, uh, there's no such thing as snow, you know, while they're standing in the center of the North Pole, you know, with all of that snow around them during a blizzard. I don't believe in snow. You know, it just doesn't uh, work. To look at a world, to look at the human body, the marvels of creation, 
the grandeur of the heavens and then come to the nonsensical conclusion that there's no God, that all of this came of nothing by itself with no rhyme or reason that we're all a bunch of random protoplasm that came out of some primordial puddle, a mud puddle. Yeah, no, it doesn't seem to be the case when you look around. This is his world and every square inch of the place he has made and his fingerprints are everywhere. Try as you might to deny it, the evidence is all around and it's loud and clear. And it's the fool who has said in their heart, there is no God, Proverbs uh, or Psalms for, Psalm 14. Because only a fool could look around at the evidence and come to that crazy conclusion that nothing plus nobody equals everything and everybody. You know, that's just a math equation that doesn't add up. So yeah, you can deny reality uh, as absurd as that is, uh, but the created thing can never look at the creator and <laughs> say, you don't exist. You know, it just doesn't work. And it, and it comes with dreadful consequences, uh, as we see laid out for us uh, with Paul the Apostle writing to the Romans, who no doubt had Psalm 19 in mind. Here it is when I'm talking about Romans 1, 18 through 20. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth. There's no God. By their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, the heavens declare the glory of God night after night. They pour forth speech. There's no language on earth that their proclamation of the existence of God hasn't been heard. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And so you really have a New Testament theological truth elaborating on the theology uh, from uh, what would it be a thousand years before Paul lived uh, this Psalm 19 was penned. And so no excuse. Uh, plain to all, the masterpiece of creation demands that there's a master craftsman. And so, yeah, a fool may say in their hearts, there is no God, but creation is screaming quite the opposite is the case. And, and you know, the funny thing is that I wrote down here, even the, the design of the guy's tongue if you just think about how how the the miracle uh, design of the tongue and how it takes signals and how it forms speech is evidence of a designer with the very tongue they're using to deny the existence of the one who created them and their tongue and their mind and their body and their soul it's really, it's really sad. And there are consequences to ignoring the plain meaning of, and we can go back to the psalm now, the plain meaning, meaning of what 
the heavens and creation is speaking to every single human being. He says, Romans says, there's a consequence of saying, I don't hear anything. I don't see anything. You know, there are consequences, he says. There's spiritual insanity and moral depravity. We become spiritually insane when we turn a blind eye to what's obvious been put out there by God for our benefit. So uh, we become spiritually crazy, all right? And so instead of worshiping our maker as evidence of our insanity, we worship ourselves, you know, our own bodies. Images of the human body, attractive and beautiful, and we'll bow down. We'll sell our soul and worship before the throne of beauty. Of who? Beauty of God? No, beauty of ourselves. And so that's just insanity. Uh, you know, we'll bow before beautiful celebrity goddesses and gods and uh, illicit pleasures and gold and silver, which is rock. It's rock. <laughs> the angels are like, what is up with humans? They kill each other for what, you know, the pavement of heaven is made of. You see, and line the streets of heaven with gold. And so, yeah, and worse than that, worshiping elephants and snakes, the whole world worshiping trees, and it hasn't stopped. The universe, the universe has really aligned my life, and the universe is Speaking to me, the universe, the universe, the universe, not the God of the universe. No, because the universe is lenient and lets you live any way you want. And there's no moral, moral accountability to the stars, you see. And so it's safer to say, yeah, I got to acknowledge something big is out there. So I'll go with the universe because I can still have my sin. And so it's the height of folly, deception, and futility. It's profoundly ungrateful, insolent, and blasphemous. Now, I, I changed a couple words of a well-known song to make my point. Uh, it's called What a Wonderful World. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, there's no God in this world. <laughs> I see skies of blue and clouds of white, the bright blessed day, the dark sacred night. And I think to myself, there's no God in this world. I hear babies cry. I watch them grow. Babies, one cell. We were 90 minutes. And then all of this 100 trillion cell multi-organ system I see those babies. I watch them grow. They'll learn much more than I'll ever know. And I think to myself, there's no God in this world. Yeah, just crazy. So instead of a wonderful world, you get a God-less world. And where that happens, Romans goes on to say, you ignore the existence of God that's clearly seen from the uh, things that he has made 
and uh, you get moral depravity of the worst kind. And so first on the list of the consequences of denying the reality of a God who has clearly made himself known through creation and our own human consciences, he says the first problem, Romans says, when you exchange the truth of God for a lie and you start worshiping yourselves and other stuff other than the blessed creator, he says there's going to be number one, Confusion, sexually, it's the first thing on the list is the LGBTQT number one. Because when you disconnect from the owner's manual of your body, how your body was designed and how we were meant to complement each other in marriage, uh, then once, once you've disconnected from the truth of God, Anything goes. And so there's a lot of confusion because there's no God. There's no guidance. There's no morality. And it gets worse. He goes on to say, uh, God deniers uh, have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit, quoting Romans 1. It just goes on and on. And so, yeah, unplugged from the truth of God that he's made obvious everywhere we look and it's a nosedive down into the proverbial uh, sewers. And so, yeah. So, but all the while, <laughs> the heavens are roaring, the praise of his glory. And so, yeah, uh, and they're talking up a storm. So the four active verbs here, creation is declaring. The word there means recounting, listing all of the attributes, all of the wonders of God. Uh, it's proclaiming. Uh, the word there means to make obvious or to make conspicuous, to announce or to expound. Uh, so this is what creation's doing. Uh, the third verb is it's pouring forth. My favorite verb in the passage, it means to gush forth like a geyser. <laughs> I love that, that the heavens are gushing forth knowledge. There is a God. There is a God. And displaying knowledge, it means to present evidence, to teach or to enlighten. Now, there's a scholar named uh, Derek Kidner, and he had a marvelous quote here. He said in ver of verse 2, the heavens display knowledge for sure. If God had not placed the stars in the night sky, the blackness of night would have communicated powerfully to all humanity, ancient and modern. There is nothing and no one out there. You see, imagine no stars, no sun, no moon, just nothing. And then people would get the wrong idea uh, that there's just nobody out there. But thankfully, there are heavens up there. Uh, the stars, the galaxies, the constellations that say quite the contrary. And before the Old Testament, there was an Older Testament. The Older Testament is called the preface to Genesis, and that's creation. And creation is a general revelation to the world. You do realize that creation was 4,000 B.C., 
Now, what about all of those people who lived from 4,000 BC and then uh, perished in the flood? And then there was a new uh, start to the world. But then again, uh, for so for 2,500 years, there was no biblical revelation. 2,500 years. What about them? Well, the heavens were declaring the glory of God. And in some way, scholars say that there was enough in creation, general revelation and creation, to point them with their human consciences that God gave them uh, toward him. And there's enough in there to know if they're turning toward the light or turning away from the light, you see. And so that's pretty amazing stuff. So it didn't matter uh, if you uh, could read or write, or if you were a Jew or could read Hebrew when the Bible did come along, it just didn't matter. God's got you. No worries. There's no language on earth that the voice of creation doesn't speak fluently. So he, he's creation and the gospel through creation because of God uh, is fluent in Phoenician Egyptian, Aramaic, all the early languages that they would have been speaking, or Navajo, or Polish, or Icelandic, or Cantonese. It can even speak the click language of the Zulu tribes. Have you ever heard of them? You have to Google click languages because they speak in clicks. And guess what? So does the universe because the universe speaks the language of the human heart because God made the universe and by extension creation is speaking to every human soul in a language that they truly understand. Uh, And you know, it's really why we go to the oceans with our Starbucks and stare. (laughs) And we just stand there and we stare. They don't even know why. They're, 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 They're not after the ocean, they're after the one who made the ocean. And uh, we go on hikes, we go vacationing in the mountains, we visit desolate canyons, we travel miles and spend lots of money to go out to a canyon and stand there by the fence and just look. You know, I, how many of you did that? I've done it, I did it too. I, I can assure you, you don't want the dirt in the canyon, you really don't. You want in every human being sees the grandeur and the power and the divine attributes of the God who created the place. And they're drawn. They want to be close. They want him. Because by extension, the one who made what we're drawn to, that we're looking at and going, wow, he made us too. He made us too. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. So... Yeah, he can he can speak uh, if he wants to uh, to the darkest Aboriginal uh, jungles there, and he and he made it easy enough for even a child. I mentioned this before, I'm sure, but years ago, I was at the barber and I was talking to the barber, and and uh, he had this little device in front of him at his workstation, and it was a little globe, and he said, "Pick it up and shake it and listen to it." So I picked it up and I shook it, and and out comes a voice. It says, thank you, God, for making the world. I know, but I said, oh, that's unbelievable. Who is that? And and he said, well, it's that thing. You shake it and you point it and and you say something and it'll record it, right? And I said, so so who is that? It's my grandson. And the funny thing is, 
I said, so he's a Christian, Christian family. And he goes, no, they're atheists. They're atheists. Oh, well, did someone bring them to church or grandma or somebody? No. Nobody knows why he said it. Nobody knows how he would know. He's five years old. And so we just shook it up one day and said, speak. And it goes, thank you, God, for making the world. <laughs> you know why? <laughs> because he knows. He knows. I knew, I remember, I remember being in fifth grade, swinging on a swing, and some kid, anyway, in my house was not holy or Christian or religious. I had never been to church. And a kid was swinging next to me, fifth grade. I know it was fifth grade because I know the house we were in. And, and, and the kid's going, talking about, there's no God, there's no God, there's no God. And he's talking about God in a negative way. And I'm swinging back and forth. And I'll never forget it. I said, you're going to get it. <laughs> I'm so glad I didn't go, yeah, there's no God. There's no God. No, I, I knew, whoa, that's not good. How did I know that? How would I know that? I only heard Jesus' name and cussing. And God's name, cussing. No Sunday school, not one class, not one quote of anything, but something in my soul at 10 years old. And I know all of you are sitting there going, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> You've got a few of your own stories. So, yeah. So sun, moon, and stars, the work of his fingers, uh, it's just awesome. For by him all things were created. All things were created by him, for him, and he holds all of creation together, Colossians 1. Uh, so it's quite the display up there. Comets, asteroids, meteor showers, the northern lights. I could go on and on. Uh, but they're not just flying around at 100,000 miles per hour for nothing. Uh, they've been given an assignment. Uh, they've, they've got something to say, and it's worth hearing. And so, yeah, um, let me show you a picture of the universe there. <laughs> so it continues to defy scientific definition of how big it is, how expansive, it's always expanding, and how many <laughs> planets. And after a while, when you get into the gabillions and the gazillions, our minds just shut down. It's just like you can't even understand the glory of it, you see. And so he's saying, it's, it's been long suggested by the way that the constellations are uh, God-given illustrations of the gospel truths. And so the names of the constellations go back to the very beginning of human history. Josephus, Josephus names Seth uh, the third son of Adam, uh, but perhaps Adam had a part uh, in, in it because he named the animal world in Genesis chapter 2. We don't know for sure, but well, here's what we do know. God assigned the names to the stars, Psalm 147, verse 4. He calls them by name. He has a name for them, and he's got a place for all of them, and he puts them where he wants them. And, and, and some very influential scholars have said uh, the 12 constellations make their grand appearances, and they speak forth, um, the gospel story. And so um, Job 38, 32, 
he brings forth the constellation season after season. Uh, so you've heard this before. The two scholars that uh, have uh, put this out there started in the 1800s, Bullinger and uh, J.A. Seiss, if you're taking notes. So Virgo represents the virgin who would give birth to the promised Messiah. Capricornus, as he's called, represents the goat uh, used for Yom Kippur, was a goat for sacrifice and atonement uh, slain for the redeemed. Orion represents Christ, the heavenly light of the world. Leo's the conquering king, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Aquarius, the water pourer of living uh, water. You know, for me, I, I say that could very well be the case. Uh, I wouldn't doubt it. God our Savior wants everybody to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. Now, maybe he did... Uh, let the ancients know that the story was in the sky for them. They didn't have a Bible for 2,500 years. And then when the Bible came out, it was in Israel. It's a big world. So perhaps there was a bigger story in general revelation to start the world knowing and be able to pass down to their kids, oh, you see, the virgin, the virgin is going to have a son who will conquer and save. Now, the, as the theory goes, the Babylonians, um, after the flood, would take the stories and paganize them into the zodiac and the stars would, <laughs> that ironically were meant to lead us to the glory of God and worship him would become the object of worship. And as I said earlier to this day, uh, the universe, the universe, the universe. And so intriguing as all that is, I like, I like it. I mean, I, I, within reason, <laughs> a firmer ground, I think, is just simply to see it uh, for what the Bible says, that uh, the universe is there uh, to display the handiwork of God, wanting the world to know, hey, I'm out here. And uh, very practical things like giving us a night, night light for evenings and that moon. You know how dark it is when there's, no, there's absolutely no stars and no moon? What a difference it makes. And navigational assistance, especially back in the day, man, used for finding our locations and giving directions. So, uh, and this just in, verses 4b to 6, one of the stars the Lord made uh, sustains life on the planet. It's called the sun. And I have written down here that it's the star of the show. And I meant that. I meant it as the star of the show. I didn't mean it as a pun. So I'm punning subconsciously now. It's just amazing. <laughs> And I'm glad I shared that with you all, too. Uh, and so, yeah, the sun. Let's talk about 4B uh, here in the heavens. He pitched a tent for the sun. And then he gives two metaphors, a bridegroom coming forth and then a champion getting ready to run his race. And so without the sun, and this is why the sun gets his own little shout out here, there'd be no life, of course. <laughs> there, there, it wouldn't be warm enough to have life. And there, light, you have to have light to have energy and heat and <coughs> vitamin D. And for my, my case, sanity. Because I could, go, I could lose my mind uh, during seasons of fog and rain. That's why I don't live in Seattle. I live here. So, so here it comes. Uh, here comes the sun. 
writes David in all its magnificence. And so he's pitched a tent in the sun uh, from which the sun emerges uh, every morning or poetic sense of this. Of course, this isn't a science book uh, per se. And uh, it's a big tent. Take a look at the size comparison of the sun to the planets. That's us, not the big blue ball. The little guy in front of the, that's us, the Earth. And you could fit 1,300,000 Earths in the sun. And it's just something God, one, one little star for God in a universe filled with countless stars. You see, it's 93 million miles from Earth, as you remember from Mr. Willard, your sixth grade science teacher. <laughs> Come on, how many had Mr. Willard? No, okay. Uh, yeah, um, any closer and we'd be uh, burnt, burnt toast. Uh, any further away and we'd all be uh, frozen statues. Uh, and so it's just amazing what God did there. And so happily, God hung that ginormous star just perfectly and um, he didn't need to use hot pads at all. He just hangs it up there. Yeah, it's mind-boggling. Think about it. Think about making just that. How? By speaking. And, and Hebrews says he, did it. he created the universe out of nothing. There was nothing to start with, you see. This is amazing. And so the point poetically here is that two metaphors. First, a bridegroom in Jewish culture, uh, the wedding day, the groom would leave the house, the tent of the father, and come out that morning all dazzled with fancy threads. And he is young and vibrant and strong and handsome. And it's the day. And he bursts through those doors. He, he's giving you the analogy of the sun coming up and rising. And here comes the bridegroom. And he is uh, out of the tent. And, and he is on his way to his beloved, his fiance's house, where he, they will become husband and wife. And, and nobody and nothing is going to stop him from reaching his uh, destination like the sun, uh, S-U-N, here. And so by implication, we need not worry that the life-giving sun might decide one day, you know what, I'm going to be sleeping in this morning. I'm not going to rise. You know, I don't want to rise and shine. You know what, uh, because I've been doing this for a lot of years, rising and shining and rising and shining. You know, I want a little sabbatical, you know, a little time off, go check out the other side of the galaxy maybe, you know, well, God endowed the sun with steadfast, dependable glory to reflect his very own steadfast goodness and faithfulness. And, this, and the same thing about the Lord and his blessing to you and to me. We don't have to worry about the sun not rising and we don't have to worry about God's mercies and his faithfulness not coming new every morning as unstoppable as the morning sunrise. And so the second metaphor is a champion athlete who's in the starter blocks 
And uh, with each dawn, the sun is like that champion, uh, crouching down and ready to run his course. Three, two, one, boom, and he's off. And he's got a victorious uh, determination to rescue, the sun does, to rescue the world from darkness that's threatening to cover the whole earth. But don't worry, everybody. Even though it's black as night and there's no hope, it's dark. It's a dark, dark world. Here I am. And he comes out of the gate like that, and he's going to run all the way around that globe and make sure wherever he is, the darkness is going to flee. Kind of reminds you of the sun, S-O-N. He will appear just like a champion, just like a bridegroom. And there's probably a play on words here for sure. Prophetically speaking, he will appear at one end of the heavens, the eastern sky, and he will make his circuit all the way around the globe. And nothing will be hidden from his heat, the judgment he will appear, quote, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8. He will appear in blazing fire. Now, if the core of the sun's temperature is 27 million degrees Fahrenheit, I don't want to know how hot the judgment of God is who made the sun. So, yeah, look up, take it all in, hear the language of all creation. There's a great, big, wonderful God out there, and actually he's not very far off from any of us. He's got the whole world in his hands, and that's you and me, sister, you and me, brother, uh, in his hands. Continuing on, seven through eight, now he's going to go from looking up at the glory of God to looking down into the word, the word of life. And so six qualities here about God's word and six benefits to our souls. Four of them are here on this slide here. Uh, four terms about God's word describing it that are kind of synom- synonymous. Uh, each provide a unique, just different nuance to give us a fuller understanding of what God's word is. The law, the statutes, the precepts, the commands. All right, so the law, Torah in Hebrew. It means instruction or directives. The implication to call God's word the law is to say how serious it is. In other words, uh, they're not called the Ten Suggestions, right? They're called the Ten Commands. All right. Thank you for being so friendly and uh, cordial. Uh, it, it's perfect, uh, he says, without flaw, without lack, without contradiction, completely factual, uh, the law of the Lord. Completely truthful, morally sound, trustworthy, and perfect in every way. Uh, they have power to revive the soul. I love that Hebrew word, shob, shob. It means to convert. So the law of the Lord has power to turn you back to God, to reconcile you, to make things right, to live again. And uh, as in, restore unto me the joy of my salvation, thy salvation, Uh, Psalm 51. That word restores right there. So the perfect commands that give us life, that's the Bible. Number two, way to understand the Bible, the statutes. That word has the nuance of the charge. God's given us a charge. 
He's saying, I, I charge you with this. I'm, I'm God, and this is how you should live and think of me and live your life. Um, the obligation to keep his word is the nuance there. And he says, the charge that God gives you is trustworthy. And so the reason he says, look, God's going to ask you to do something, but it's trustworthy in this. You can trust it because usually what God is asking of you and me is against our natural inclination. So he says, don't worry about that. It's trustworthy. It will make you wise. And he's not talking about academic smartness. He's talking about how to live life and live it uh, successfully. And so, yeah, number three, uh, the precepts here, the nuances, the observances, something given to be observed is the word of God or obeyed. And so he says the observances of the Lord are right. They're appropriate. They work for you in every circumstance. They're fail safe. They're right. So if you want true joy, uh, independent of your circumstance, apply his word in every situation. It'll work like a charm and you'll have joy that the world can't take away. And then the uh, for number four is the commands, the commands of the Lord, the requirements, you know, the obligations and that they're, look at how he links it to joy. They're not joy killers. They're not dull and dreary or burdensome like the devil tells you and like your flesh tells you. Uh, they're actual actually radiant the words from the light of the world can only brighten one's countenance it, you know the the god's word is inspired the word to to talk about god's word is god breathed it's his very essence is breath and he breathes life into us and that brings hope and light. We ran into somebody, I can't remember where it was, but I remember the look on her face. It was death, just death. Uh, formally went to our church years ago and uh, she just backslid, lost her first love and uh, no longer abiding in the vine. And when Barb and I walked away from her, I said her countenance, her countenance she looked terrible. I mean, countenance-wise, not physically. And uh, Barb said, she's not walking with the Lord. She's not in his word. She's not abiding in the vine. And that'll zap the life right out of you, man. And you can't hide that. He, he goes on from 9 to 11 the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. Uh, you know, he, he calls the word of God the fear of the Lord here. You know, and, and why? Because the, the word and the fear of the Lord, the reverence for God, the awe of God, they're inextricably linked together. So much so that he can call the word. Uh, he opens it up and did you read from the fear of the Lord today? You know, that's what he's talking about. Uh, because you see the connection. You can't meet God in the scriptures and, and not have a healthy dose of respect. Um, and, you know, especially when you read things like in Exodus 33 and verse 10, he says, no, no human being can see me and live. The fullness of who God is, we cannot in human, in our human condition, we cannot take that in or we would cease to be. You know, so the proverb says, look, if you need the fear of the Lord, it's the beginning of wisdom, you see, because if 
the beginning of wisdom has to be that you know there's a God and you revere him because you can be the smartest guy in the world. If you don't know the Lord, the author of life, what kind of quality of life could you have? You're disconnected from the source. So, so the first step of wisdom is to acknowledge there is a God and I need to respect him and revere him. And so, yeah, he says the fear of the Lord is morally pure, so it's eternal. So God's absolute goodness and absolute truth um, will never fade. It'll never come undone because it is uh, absolutely pure and eternal in that regard. And so finally in the list, the ordinances of the Lord. And the word ordinances has a nuance of judgments, the verdicts, the way God sees something and says, this is the way it is. He says, those things are uh, true and sure. The word sure there means firm, reliable. Altogether righteous means 100% right every time. Like, wait until you're married. Keep yourself for your husband or your wife. These are the judgments of the Lord. They're sure, they're right, uh, and they will bless you. Humble yourself. Be the servant of everybody. Think of others as better than yourself. Don't retaliate, evil for evil. Bless those who curse you. Love those who hate you. Pick up your cell phone and turn it off to the off position. That's a commandment of the Lord. It's right and true and pure. And it will revive your pastor's soul and make you wise and give joy to your heart and light to your eyes. Verse 10 And uh, what's the worth? David's next thought, David knew what was truly valuable in life. The word of God, knowing it, loving it, obeying it. Not just being a hearer, but being a doer. So he says, uh, verse 10a, it exceeds any material value. And then in 10b, it's more delightful than the sweetest of earthly pleasures. So, okay, surpasses any material worth. They're more precious than gold. And then he says, (laughs) than much pure gold. He says, I'd rather have the love of God, the word of God, uh, you know, living in my heart than than a luxurious palatial estate. The friendship of God, I'd rather have that than a Ferrari, you know? Better a humble meal of vegetables, like the Proverbs say, with love than a fancy uh, big banquet where there's strife and hate, you see. So the word of God reigns supreme for its worth and its ability to satisfy our deepest uh, desires. So, uh, yeah, and and more delightful, uh, the word of God is just uh, the sweetest of all earthly pleasures. He goes, it's sweeter than honey. What's sweeter than honey? Man alive, what's sweeter than honey? You can't be, you know, he's saying, he's saying, I'll tell you what's sweeter than honey, a clean conscience, knowing my sins are all wiped out and that I'll stand before God and have a smile on his face and I'm going to live forever. The favor of God and peace in my heart and a quiet mind, that's sweeter than honey. So the moral of the story, practical value, verse 11, warnings to avoid harm and instructions to gain blessing. He says, by the word of God, your servant is warned 
and in keeping them, there's great reward. So warnings, warnings are kind of, I see the Bible sometimes as like air traffic control, you know, in my ear, just letting me know of things that I can't see, things that I need to know about, you see? And, and so we trust that word, even though we can't see it, we don't know about it, but there's somebody has, has a view we don't have and knows things we don't know. So it's in the word of God that says, though uh, you might have natural inclinations to doing something, uh, you better listen up here and uh, be warned. And so he'll say things like flee youthful lust, Second Timothy 2, avoid people who cause division, avoid them. Uh, that's in Romans 16 and verse 17. Or he says, the mindset on your, on your sinful nature is death. But the mindset on the Holy Spirit is life and peace, Romans chapter 8, verse 6. And tons of warnings, uh, yeah. So stay, stay apprised. The rewards are the same in the word. It teaches you how, how, to, how to be rewarded. He says, given it will be given to you. Jesus said, poured into your lap, pressed down, and overflowing, keep pouring, pressing it down. He says, if you give, you will receive, he says, according to the measure you use to give out. You see? Now, now that's a nice little tidbit there uh, to show us how we can be rewarded. Uh, humble yourself under God's mighty hand, and in due time, he'll exalt you. Oh, who wants to be exalted by God? I, I would. I'd rather that than God oppose me. But he says, hey, if you want me to lift you up, then humble yourself. It's like, okay, let's start tonight. Um, draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. How many people in here want God to, to say, scoot a little bit closer? You know what I mean by that, right? Of course. Then he tells you how to do that. Scoot closer to him, and he's going to... Yeah, that sounds good, huh? Uh, let's finish up. 12 and 13. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. So let's take a look at that. So last point, and just a couple minutes here. Uh, now, uh, we've taken a look into the heavens. We see his handiwork. We look into the scriptures. We see our purpose. And now we look into our hearts to make sure everything's okay. Right? So um, it's hard uh, to see what's really going on with us, isn't it? It just really is. And you can see that. Who can discern his errors? You know, and here's the reason why you, we have a hard time at seeing our own faults. Because number one, uh, really, we're proud little creatures. Uh, and we don't like to admit when we mess up. We hate it. We hate it. And, and some, of our, uh, some of us are worse than others about this. It's like as if you admit that you made a tiny little mistake, your whole world comes undone. I've met a lot of people like that. They just can't ever say they're sorry and ever own up to even a little thing because if they own up to a little thing, it's just like, oh, I'm a terrible person. And I don't know, but that is just not a good way to live. And so, yeah, um, just pride for sure. Uh, all a man's way seems right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. Proverbs 21 and verse 2. All of our ways seem right to us always. We always think we're okay most of the time. And number two, we blame people all the time. That's why we can't discern our, our errors. It's everybody else's fault. You know? Look, look at it. It's in our nature. 
God calls Adam after the sin. He goes, come here, son, I want to talk to you. What, what on earth happened here? And he goes, well, I'll break it down to you, okay? Number one, it's the woman. <laughs> Number two, that you gave me. <laughs> right? So listen, God, you want to know what happened? Let's start with Eve, and then we'll look at you, all right? Uh, you know what the Proverbs say, a man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. That's a quote. That's why. He goes, I, I can't see in here. I'm all messed up because I've got so many mechanisms built in to defend myself and justify and make excuses and blame everybody else. That when I do look in there, you know, I just see the speck in everybody else's eye and I don't know there's a log coming out of my face. You know, I don't know how. That's the most funny thing that Jesus ever said. He has pictured a, a telephone pole coming out of some guy's head. And he's like, hey, brother, I believe you got a speck over here. Let, let me help you with your little tiny problem. And doesn't know that he has a larger problem of his own. Who can discern their error? You know, he says, but God can tell you. If you're listening, God show me. That's what he's saying. God show me. I want to grow. I don't want to walk through life with a pull out of my face, you know. And uh, that's just not good. So help me to see where I'm missing it. I'm, I'm blowing it. That's what he's saying here. I'm afraid personally that when we do see something wrong in our hearts and lives, it's only really like the iceberg, the tip of the iceberg, that we see what's above the surface line, right? But truly, it goes way deeper than that. And I think that's what he's trying to say here. Uh, Adam Clark, uh, from a couple hundred years ago, a uh, commentator, he said, this is what David's saying. Forgive me for the sins I've committed um, that I've forgotten about. <laughs> Uh, and forgive me from, from those for which I have not repented properly and from those which have been committed in the privacy of my heart that nobody knows about. Forgive me for all of that. And then he says, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Presumptuous sins is like, I'll do it. We all do it. It's part of the human condition. He always forgives me. I'm going to do it. Not good. Help me not to do that, God. That's what he says. Um, one writer said, it's wise and necessary to keep short accounts with God. That by using the word of God in prayerful ways and thorough ways, we can keep ourselves free of sin that would destroy us and ruin everything. And then we close out with the last sweet prayer that I, I don't know about you, but I think I've prayed this a verse more than any other verse in the Bible. It just is stuck in my soul. May the words of my, let's say it together. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Closes, closes out really sweetly here. Sweet surrender. So he realizes this is not just not about how I behave and how people see me behave, but it's about things that are more private. It's about the words of my mouth, too, and really uh, the thoughts, my inner life. 
He said, so, you know, at the end of the day, Lord, if we played a tape of every word that came out of my mouth and you're sitting there and I'm sitting there and we're both listening to every word I said today, I want you to be able to listen and go, good job. Good job. You kept a tight rein on your tongue. Uh, You changed the subject when you needed to. You shut your mouth when you needed to. You spoke up when you should have spoken. You didn't let any unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only words that built people up. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Good job. And he says, that's what I want to hear. At that close of every day, we'll play the tape. And then, and then when he goes, oh, man, yeah, whoa, 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 whoa. And then you repent. And then you get up in the morning and you say, let's do it again. Let's try. Because tonight, we're going to play the tape. You see, and he does that with the same thing with the mind of the thoughts. Oh, the thoughts are the worst. And um, you just got to be really, really diligent with the thoughts to take them captive. I always picture, you know, lassoing the thoughts and pulling them down by the power of the Holy Spirit to make take them captive and obedient to Christ and the truth of the Bible. I love how he says, Lord, you're my strength, you're my rock, you're my redeemer. In other words, he's saying, look, all this goodness that I want with you is not going to come from my effort. You're my strength. Your redeemer means to buy them back. So back in Israel, in the ancient times, if somebody got sold into slavery or debtor's prison, this kinsman redeemer could come and buy, and buy them out, buy them back. So he's saying, you're the one. I've messed up my life. I'm powerless to save myself. I'm bankrupt. I don't have any moral fortitude at all. You're the one who buys me back. You're my rock. You you set my feet on solid ground. And uh, yeah, um, I'm weak, but you're strong. So uh, there's a lot of hope there. So looking back over the psalm, He's saying, Lord, you've done glorious things in creation and you do glorious things through your word. Now please do glorious things in my heart and through my life. Let's pray. Father God, just thank you for your beautiful love, your goodness, your mercy. Thank you for this beautiful psalm. It's a real favorite, God. We love your power seen through creation. We love your goodness we see in your word and we love the fact that we could be forgiven and right with you in our hearts but thank you lord for this beautiful work in christ's name we pray amen you've been listening to the rocks podcast our regular services are held on sunday mornings at 8 9 30 and 11 30 a.m in santa rosa california if you'd like to learn more please visit our website at cctherock.org